Um, just a couple of things. You know, always looking for God to say very clearly what he'd like me to share with the congregation when I get the opportunity. You know, for 34 years I got to pastor and just about uh, preach every week. And then at the end of 2006 I got put out to pastor. And um, so I, I, when I get these opportunities I'm always anxious to see what God... And, and I knew when this message was on my heart, I knew that there were several difficulties in trying to share a message like this. When we talk about good grief, what does good grief look like? Um, I know that there is an inclination in younger people to say, well, grief, that's what old people do. Well, and that's true, and that's why they brought me here. But um, <laughs> I'm going to tell you a story in just a minute about two girls, 18 and 16, who are grieving in a way that they never thought they would be. Um, and just 16 and 18. The second thing about this message that makes it difficult, kind of like when I'm training new officers with Windsor Police Service, I say, I'm going to talk about the emotional and spiritual loss you experience in working law enforcement. And they all kind of look at me weird. And I say, I'm sharing this information with you now. I'm asking you to store it because it doesn't make any sense now, but it will later. This is one of those messages. But I also know this that when I was just coming up on my ninth birthday, my grandmother with whom we lived and the only grandparent I ever knew, my grandmother died. I came to the breakfast table one morning just before Easter and uh, my parents informed me that grandma died the night before. She'd been in the hospital for about a week and I cried really hard. Um, That was a very difficult moment, but Many times children process grief much more quickly than adults. And so I recovered fairly quickly because I, I managed to ask this question. For, you know, for all those years that I had lived, my brother and I had shared a bedroom. And so my question to my mother at that point was, well, when can I move into Grandma's bedroom? <laughs> Not a good question. I paid a high price for that for a long time. But, but the, 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 the interesting part of this is, that my parents didn't think I was old enough to go to my grandma's funeral. And so they brought somebody into the house to stay with me, and I watched that funeral happen a block and a half away at the Baptist church. And I often think that I was shortchanged on my opportunity to appropriately grieve the death of the only grandparent I ever knew. There's a third uh, part of this thing, and when you talk about a subject like this, is that many people think that grief is only connected to the loss of someone you love. There are many layers to this. And you'll, as I tell you some stories today, you'll see some other places where we experience, because the conviction that I'll be working with is that grief is the gift that God gives us to process losses in our lives. And the losses are many different kinds. In fact, one guy came to me after the first service and he said, thank you for reminding me that loss in our lives and grieving losses is way bigger than just losing somebody you love because he said, the day my wife left our marriage is the biggest loss I've ever experienced. Now, my wife works in private adoption, and her work in private adoption is dealing with people who are experiencing infertility and the loss that that, the impact of the loss that that is in their lives. Uh, my son-in-law is not doing well these days because he lost his job, his position in ministry. 
So there's many different places we can go in this. I'm just going to take a moment and pray, and then we're going to walk right into this. Would you join me? Father, wherever we find ourselves today, in a place that is happy, filled with joy, we know that your promise is you show up in that place and you celebrate with us. But there are some of us here today who have experienced a lesser loss or maybe a more significant loss. And we need to learn at your feet what it is to embrace the gift that you give us in order that we take that journey through that grief in our lives. So wherever we are, you have promised to meet us there and take us to a whole place. So do your work as only you can do it for Christ's sake. Amen. Robert Debian's returned home from running some errands to his house where he was very anxious to greet his wife, Carrie. And as he walked through the doors, this was on August 29th of this year, as he walked through the doors to his home, he called out Carrie's name and he got no response. And as he made his way to the living room, he saw Carrie sleeping, as he thought, on the Chesterfield in the living room. But as he moved closer, he realized Carrie was not sleeping. In fact, she died. The full autopsy results are not in yet. But the preliminary police report, which I read, says this. We believe that Carrie Debian's died from an accidental uh, prescription drug overdose. Carrie had battled cancer three years previously, and she was being given medication for the ongoing pain that she was experiencing in her recovery process. But it wasn't just Robert who experienced the loss that day. Carrie's parents experienced what no adult ever wants to experience in their lives, the death of one of their own children. You see, Carrie was just 39 years of age. But perhaps the biggest point of impact of Carrie's death came in the life of her two daughters, Peyton, who's 18, and Madison, who's 16. And they had barely begun the process of journeying through their grief when on October 7th, Madison was preparing to go out with some friends and she knew that her father had been sleeping and she went to wake her father only to discover that her father died. And in that period of time, something around six weeks, Peyton and Madison had lost both their parents at age 39 and 41. They moved in with grandparents just to get some relief from living in the context of all that pain. And on Thanksgiving Day, they received a call from Windsor Police Service to say their townhouse had been broken into and that everything of value in their lives had been stolen. But of most value to them, especially at this point in their journey, was the fact that all their family photographs were now gone. So you, don't, you can't tell me that grief is only something someone experiences at a latter, latter stage of their life. Grief can happen at a very early stage in our life, and a going to be sharing a couple of stories with you later that will give you some insight to that. This morning what I want to do is I want to be able to center our thoughts about this thing called good grief around a couple of places. And the first of those places is this. This is a statement that I think is absolutely critical for everybody to have a handle on. Every loss in life requires an appropriate season of grieving. Now, I asked this in the first congregation, but first service, but those people get up way too early and they weren't conscious yet. 
And I ask this question, have you ever had the experience of somebody who's going through a grieving experience and somebody said to them, it's time to get on with it? It's time to move on? Get on with it. You know, get back to... The truth is that every loss, and of course the more significant the loss, the, the longer the season of grieving, but every loss in life requires an appropriate season of grieving. Here's my conviction. Ungrieved loss will show up someplace later in your life and it will be far more painful and more difficult at a later place. I could tell you a story that I experienced this week about that, but it would take me too long. Every loss in life. And, and maybe one of the things that, the reason we have trouble um, embracing this clicker, maybe one of the reasons is because the dictionary defines loss for us, and I'm going to need help moving these ahead. The dictionary defines loss this way, keen mental suffering or distress over affliction or loss. Now, who in their right mind wants to invite keen mental suffering or distress into their lives? And I think part of the issue, for me at least, is we sometimes look at grieving as something you do everything in your power, to, everything possible to avoid. If it, that's what it is, I want to avoid it. But instead, what I want you to do as you journey with me this morning, I want you to see that, in fact, grief is good. Because grief is the gift that God gives us that allows us to walk through that place of loss in our lives in order to get to a place of wholeness. So that reference point, every loss in life requires an appropriate season of grieving, the other reference point I want to use, I need to go ahead. I'm going to shut this down and see if I start it up again. The other reference point I want to use for this is a powerful story in the Bible. Many of you, if you've spent time in the scripture, know this story. It's a story in John's chapter 11, and the story begins to unfold. And the story begins to unfold. We begin to see a number of things. Some dear friends of Jesus, two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, have experienced a very difficult time in their life. Move that ahead so we can catch this. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother, was, Lazarus, was sick, so the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Now, simple question. When you get word that a dear friend of yours is very sick, what's the first thing that can, comes into your mind? For me, first thing that comes into mind, what can I do to clear my schedule so I can go and spend time with them? Now, in an ironic twist, the scriptures tell us at this point in time that Jesus did something very different than that. And I think if we move that ahead, we'll get that. Too far ahead, but that's okay. I didn't put this in. Let me just tell you what the scripture says. In John chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, this is what the, the scripture tells us that Jesus' response was to the news that Lazarus was sick. Verse 5 and 6. When Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. And then, although he loved Jesus, although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, 
He stayed where he was for the next two days. Now, I, I don't know how to react to that when I read that, but I think my first reaction is probably, how uncaring does Jesus get? How uncaring does Jesus really get? And I'm going to put this clicker down because I'm making a mess of it. But eventually the decision is made to head back. And when the decision is made to head back to be with, Lazarus, to be with Mary and Martha, the disciples all of a sudden go sideways on this. Remember Jesus when you were back there the last time? Remember how those people wanted to stone you to death? Like, I think this is a stupid decision on your part. I think you need to rethink this. But in the conversation that follows, Christ introduces us to a very important set of principles about how we can embrace good grief in order to appropriately process the experiences of loss we have in life. And the first of those principles is here. I want you to see it. Loss leaves us in a dark place. Loss always leaves us in a dark place. This is a scripture. Jesus replied to the disciples, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. <coughs> but at night, there is a danger of stumbling because there is no light. This week I had the privilege of meeting Sheldon Kennedy, and for those of you who have a bit of an athletic interest, by the way, I, uh, I'm grieving a loss this week that the Blue Jays aren't going to be in the World Series. And you think that's a little loss? That in my life, that's a big loss. But I met the, uh, Sheldon Kennedy. He was a professional hockey player. Sheldon Kennedy has done an amazing thing that nobody else in Canada has yet been successful in doing. He understood that when a child has experienced some form of abuse, the parents have to take them to the police station to give a police report, to a psychologist to get counseling support, maybe to children's aid to get some support, children's services to get some support, maybe to a medical doctor if it's some kind of serious abuse. And what he did is he created the Center for Advocacy for Children's Advocacy Center in Calgary, Alberta, where everybody is in the same building. So there's play therapy. You can bring your child there. Child can be engaged in pl in play, so they become to feel come to feel this is a safe place. Police officers there take on the police report. Medical staff, doctors, and nurses. It all all in one center. But if you backtrack on Sheldon Kennedy's journey you discover something very, very painful in his life. Then when he was just a preteen, a guy showed up at the door of his parents in rural Saskatchewan and said, would you be okay if I took Sheldon and his brother to Winnipeg to stay in my apartment so I, I can show them what it's like to be a hockey player? Because that individual understood that Sheldon Kennedy had an amazing athletic ability. But the story didn't end there because that same man became the coach of his junior hockey team. And he began to sexually abuse Sheldon Kennedy over and over and over again. And at some point during his junior career, Sheldon and his teammates were on a bus that had a crash and four of his teammates were killed. He was never allowed to grieve that because the coach would not allow any of the players who were on that bus that day 
to undergo any kind of counseling support. Why? I think the answer is pretty obvious. The coach was afraid that some of the pain that some of those young men that he had abused would come out in addition to what they'd experienced with the accident. He was afraid that his abuse would be exposed. And Sheldon Kennedy sits down and he tells us, that, tells us this story. It's very interesting. <clears throat> A child who has been sexually abused is 26 more times likely to experience homelessness than the average kid. A child sexually abused is three times more likely to have an unplanned pregnancy, four times more likely to experience self-harm or suicidal ideation. And I think, and there's more statistics, and I'm not going to burden you with those, but I think that's why we see the importance of what Jesus is saying when you walk in a dark place, there's always a danger of stumbling. And loss takes us to a dark place. And so the reason that he gives us this gift called grief is so that we can process that in the dark place and walk back into the light, back into a better place in our lives. The second principle is this. Loss distorts our ability to see and think clearly. Listen to, this, listen to this very brief scripture. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, when Jesus announces he's going back to see Lazarus to the place that had been a danger to him previously, Thomas said to his fellow disciples, let's go, let's go too, and we'll just die with Jesus. Now is that distorted thinking or what? Jesus had no intention to go back and die. He knew it wasn't in the master plan. But for some reason, in this dark place, Thomas began to think and see in a very distorted way. Some of you will know what that's like. Because some of you in a, in a dark place have discovered what it is to lose the ability to see and think clearly. I have a friend by the name of Cheryl who had a very destructive pattern of lifestyle because of some of the things that were part of her history as a child. But alcoholism was one of them. She had gone through a couple of abortions, a number of things, but she had a powerful encounter with Christ. And as a result of that encounter with Christ, many years ago, her life completely turned in a different direction. Cheryl has never been hesitant to tell anybody, and not in a pushy or offensive way, that Jesus Christ has made a profound difference. That her life is on a completely different tra trajectory than it was previously. But about three months ago, her only daughter, her only child, a grown adult child, announced that she was taking her only grandson and they were going to move to Victoria, B.C. from Windsor the sense of loss that Cheryl had from that experience was huge. And I could watch as she, the conversations that I was having with her just were indicating that more and more she was spiraling down to a very dark place. And this week she said to me, would you do me a favor? Would you arrange an appointment with the elders so that I could have a conversation with them 
and seek their forgiveness for what I've done. And I said, Cheryl, what have you done that's that offensive? She said, I am causing many, many people to leave this congregation. I need you to see how loss distorts our ability to see and think clearly. Because if you ask 85 to 90% of the people at Lakeshore St. Andrew's Church, do you know Cheryl? They would say no. So in that 10 to 15% who might recognize her name, what do I think is the impact she has on their lives in terms of them making a decision to leave the church? Zero. And I tried to have the conversation with her about the fact that I don't know of a single person who ever left the church who would say the reason I left was because of Cheryl. But because of the fact she isn't engaged yet in processing the loss of her daughter and grandson, she has a distorted way of thinking that now all of a sudden she bears responsibility for all the people who are leaving the church. That's where, that's where, that's where this guy Thomas was at. He'd, he'd gotten to a dark place in, in terms of his thinking where his heart was and now he was distorted in how he was seeing life and how, what he was thinking about life. Ungrieved losses. This is why God gives us the gift of grief. Because ungrieved losses distort our ability to see and think clearly. Now this story has a third profound principle in terms of that whole thing. And the principle is this. Loss always, almost always has an if-only factor. An if-only factor. The pain that accompanies loss in our lives triggers a need that we replay what has happened and think extensively about what could we have done or said, what could have happened that would have resulted in a different outcome. Not a single one of us in this place today who doesn't understand Mary and Martha's if only. Because this is the way it went down. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then they enter into a very meaningful conversation that starts Martha on a journey to, to a better place. But shortly after that, Jesus moves on. And when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. We know the if-onlys of life. We know that when we go through a place of loss in our lives, it's not unusual to want to replay and see how it might have gone down differently. <clears throat> My wife and I, our daughter and our grandson, returned from California on vacation this week, this, uh, this past summer, and a friend of ours had taken message off our answering machine. As I began to scroll through that, those messages, about fourth message down, there was a call from the local hospital saying that an acquaintance of mine who I had done extensive counseling with was hospitalized in the psychiatric unit at Hotel Du. He was asking if I would come to see him. I called the hospital and found out that he had been discharged about eight days previously. So I called his cell phone. And this is the message that I heard on his cell phone. This number that you have dialed is no longer in service. So I called a couple of people who might know him and, and to see if I could get some information. 
and I either couldn't reach anybody or they didn't know. So just in a kind of crazy way, I went online, punched in his name. And the first thing that came up was his obituary and an invitation to post a tribute to him. So I went to the tribute section and discovered that nobody had posted a tribute. At that point, I got, got a little sharper in the process, and I called his son Mark. And I said, Mark, I need to know the story about your dad. And through his tears, he told me the story. And after telling me kind of the details of his father's death, he said this. What do you think he started with? Two words. What do you think the words were? I haven't given you any clue at all. If only I had spent more time with my dad, he wouldn't have taken his own life. I've had several conversations with Mark since that time. And almost every conversation begins with a different if only. If only. And part of the grieving process is to walk through that if only place. Walk through all of that thinking about the if onlys, the relentless sense of those that come. Because there is nothing unspiritual. There is nothing unhealthy. There is nothing wrong with having if onlys. They're a natural part of this lost process. However, however, if we are ever going to move beyond them, We must enter into a season of grieving in order to process all that goes with the loss in our lives. And finally, the fourth principle is this. Loss not only has an if-only factor, but loss touches us at the deepest emotional level. Loss touches our deepest emotions. We're not going to talk about Mary, Martha, Lazarus. We're not going to talk about the disciples anymore. We're going to talk about the master of the grieving process. You know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was faced with the loss of his own life, he grieved deeply. And on this occasion, again, the emotions of the grieving process process show up. When Jesus saw Martha weeping, and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Anger, the emotion is anger. But here's a different, this is the shortest verse in the the Bible. Because he went from anger to, then Jesus wept. But in only three verses later, Jesus was still angry when he asked them, where's Lazarus buried? And they're protesting because he's been buried a long time, you don't want to go there. Jesus insists on going to the tomb. And it says Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. So we see the emotions that Jesus is experiencing. Anger, weeping, anger. But here's the question. What is the loss that Jesus is experiencing at this moment? I had a great conversation with one of your guys after the service. He said, I think that what Jesus was grieving was the whole thing about death. Because it was the enemy, and he wanted to conquer the enemy. I think that's absolutely a possibility. But when I first began to ask myself that question, I thought it was more around this kind of thing. Jesus has invested heavily in Mary and Martha 
in teaching them about the most profound spiritual principles of life, and they don't seem to have gotten it yet. Jesus has worked daily with his disciples to teach them the most profound and impacting spiritual principles of life, and they don't seem to have gotten it yet. Now, if you're a parent, you would know nothing about this experience, right? You've never tried to teach your children a lesson only to discover they can't seem to get a hang on, get a hold on it. And you never get frustrated at your kids because you've taught them a lesson over and over again and they, they just, every time they run into that lesson, they obediently do what you ask of them. Right. You know what it's like when you've tried to teach important principles to your kids and they just don't lay hold on them. I'm part of a group of guys. <clears throat> We're kind of a ragtag group. But we meet regularly to build some accountability into our lives. And recently we've been working through our, our way through this great little book called The Knight in Rusty Armor. The Knight in Rusty Armor is just a parable that tells a story of a knight who is constantly on crusades. And in one of his crusades he meets a beautiful young damsel. He marries her. They have a son, Christopher. But he's back out on the crusade trail. And eventually when he comes home... He discovers that he's been crusading so much that he can't get his armor off. It's all seized up. So he goes to the local blacksmith, and the blacksmith beats him about the head, but he can't get the armor off. And finally, he meets a man who tells him, you must go on a journey. And it's a journey of self-discovery. You must go through, first of all, through the castle of silence. And he's given a part, two partners to go through on the journey with him, a squirrel and a pigeon. They feed him while he's on his journey. Very telling. But as he reaches the end of the journey and as the armor begins to fall away, because he's had some profound moments when he realized his wife may never want him back. His son may not even care if he shows up again. And it forces him into a journey that is painful and hard at times, but now at the very end of the story, we see him coming out on the backside. And I just want to read these two lines. Squirrel and Rebecca, Rebecca's the pigeon, watch the knight drop to his knees with tears of gratitude flowing from his eyes. He thought, I nearly died from the tears I left unshed. I nearly died from the tears I left unshed. I can't tell you how often, you know, this isn't, this wasn't my favorite message that I wanted to come here with, by the way. But it was the one that God said, Chuck, this, this is important. <clears throat> I can't tell you how often I've had to sit down with somebody who is processing a grief that happened many, a loss that happened many years before, and they pushed it down and pushed it down and they pushed it down till they could push it down no longer. And now it's time to grieve. My wife Jen and I have an adopted daughter. The adoption of her did not go well and she suffered years of different forms of abuse by family members. We helped her process her way through that and she became a strong, healthy adult until once again, her daughter got pregnant 
and was about to give birth and her daughter knew she was not in a place to take care of that child and she made an adoption plan for her son. And it took our daughter Maria back into the valley of pain because what, what, if, what, what if he gets adopted and he goes through the same things I did? And she's now in a second season of grieving, processing that. I'm just here to say, I know that in, the, in a group of people this large, there are some of you today that are gr truly grateful to God that you're not in a season of loss. And I just hope you'll thank him for that. But know that somebody who sits around you is. And if you have any opportunity to encourage an individual in a, going through an experience of loss, just tell them every loss in life requires an appropriate season of grieving. And I'm going to walk that season with you. Because ungrieved losses, you pay a dear price for ungrieved losses for years. I'm going to pray particularly for those of you who may want to be re-engaging with a good grief that God gives us because you need a you have a loss that must be addressed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you know the heart that today is heavy because there is a life impacting loss. And not only are you willing to saddle up beside that person, walk that journey with them. But there are other people in this room who could be partners in that journey, and I pray that you would make them that. You would invite them into that. So do what only you can do. Lead a person with brokenness to a place of healing because your spirit walks that journey. For Christ's sake, amen.